0: In his essay on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien is going to talk about escape as one of the features or aspects of fairy stories, and indeed of a lot of narrative literature as well. He says that I have claimed that escape is one of the main functions of fairy stories, and since I do not disapprove of them, it's plain that I do not accept the tone of scorn or pity with which escape is now so often used, a tone for which the uses of the word outside literary criticism give no warrant at all. And he's going to engage in some interesting reflections on why we would actually condemn something for being escape. He points out, and this is very ingenious, that in what the misusers are fond of calling real life, and we should actually pause on that for a moment, so many people use this term, and and Tolkien actually capitalizes the R and the L, As if they know what they're talking about. As if they somehow have a lock on real life that the rest of us just don't have. You see this with people say, oh, you don't understand how business works. You don't understand how the game is played. When you have to deal with real life, you will act differently. Well, how do we know that they're more in touch with real life than we are? And... Tolkien says, you know, if you think about real life, escape is actually quite practical. He says, evidently as a rule, very practical, and it may even be heroic. He says, in real life, it is difficult to blame it unless it fails. In criticism, though, it would seem to be the worse, the better it succeeds. So you buy yourself some some literature and you're reading it, you're engaging in escape from the real world that you should be constantly engaged with, you know? And we could extend this to all sorts of things. You're watching a television show. Ooh, it's not 60 Minutes talking about problems. You're engaging in escapism and that's bad, right? We could pick whatever other show as if somehow 60 Minutes isn't more scripted and edited than other shows and so he talks about this example of being in a prison if a person he says is brought into a prison why should a person be scorned if they try to get out and go home to escape from the boundaries of the prison and you could you know bring up extenuating circumstances well maybe they're getting better medical care three square meals a day i mean Anybody who knows anything about American prisons knows that that's typically not the case. But that we could go on from there. What if they committed a horrendous crime and they are convicted in their heart, not only by a jury of their crime? Well, okay, that's not what Tolkien is talking about. He's talking about somebody who's been put in prison and has good reasons to get out. And if they can't get out, he's got another very interesting observation here. He says, if when he cannot do so, Why should he be scorned if he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls? The world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. So there are people, I've met some within Indiana State Prison who wanted everybody to focus just on what's right in front of them, the here and now, don't talk about anything outside. And the rest of the prisoners would be like, who the hell are you to tell me I can't talk about anything else? Why would I want to focus just on this stuff right here? There's a legitimate purpose to escape or purposes, you could say, from Tolkien's point of view. And he says that the critics are actually mixing up two different things. So he tells us that we're faced by a misuse of words and a confusion of thought. What is that? He says that in using escape in this way, the critics have chosen the wrong word. What should they have chosen? They're confusing not only by sincere error, the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. So there's two different pairings, right? Escape, prisoner, flight, deserter. What is a deserter? Somebody who should be staying and fighting or doing their duty and instead they leave, they take off. Escape and flight are in some respects the same action. Somebody is leaving, somebody is hiding, somebody is subverting, somebody is taking off, but it's the action the motive of it, the way we would talk about the action, that's different. The deserter is deserting their duties the prisoner who is escaping is getting the hell out of a place that sucks and that they don't have a duty to stay in. So the critics often confuse these two things and he goes on and he says that just as a party spokesperson might have labeled departure from the misery of the Führers or any other Reich and even criticism of it as treachery in the same way these critics to make confusion worse and so to bring into contempt their opponents, stick their Label of scorn not only onto desertion but onto other things what are these other things that Tolkien brings up he says they not only condemn desertion which is the right thing to do but also real escape and were often its companions and here he brings up four things disgust anger condemnation and revolt A little bit later, he'll also talk about reaction as well. And this is very interesting, isn't it? Because it's not just escape that he's saying you know you you really there's a legitimate purpose to it there is a legitimate use of disgust there is a legitimate use of anger there is a legitimate use of condemnation there is even a legitimate use of revolt and the critics are blurring all of these things together under one term that they call escape but which is really desertion leaving behind what you have a duty to confront or to work with and so he says not only do they confound the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter, but they would seem to prefer the acquiescence of the Quisling to the resistance of the Patriot to such thinking you only have to say the land you loved is doomed to excuse any treachery, indeed to glorify it. What was a Quisling? Well, it was actually named after a guy whose name was Quisling and he betrayed his country to the Nazis. In fact, taking a position of power once the Nazis had invaded his country of Norway way. So he's saying here that the critics really have things backwards. We shouldn't be quizzlings. We should, in fact, try to escape. There's a legitimacy to this. And he's going to give us three interesting examples, which might be a little hard for us to relate to. And we might say that Tolkien is a bit of a, you know, stick in the mud in in some ways but he talks about this for a trifling instance not to mention electric street lamps of mass-produced pattern in your tail is escape you're not you're not talking about the street lamps right the way that you should and Tolkien says you don't have to talk about street lamps right the lamps may be excluded from the tail just because they're bad lamps and it's possible one of the lessons to be learned is the realization of this fact and then he says but out comes the big stick electric lamps have come to stay, they say. And he says, you know, how do we know that? Maybe they're going to be replaced by something else down the line in 10, 20 years as well, right? He says the electric street lamp may indeed be ignored simply because it is so insignificant and transient. And fairy tales have many more permanent and fundamental things to talk about. Lightning, For example, the escapist is not so subservient to the whims of evanescent fashion as are these opponents. He does not make things, which it may be quite rational to regard as bad. His masters or his gods by worshiping them is inevitable, even inexorable, right? And here he actually says, maybe we'll pull down the street lamps. Escapism might turn into reaction. Then he talks about something else quite interesting. Listen to the term robot factories, right? in his time you know manufacturing was increasingly including automation and people were having all sorts of you could say wet dreams of technology back then and he talks about a clerk of oxford declaring that he welcomed the proximity of mass production robot factories and the roar of self-obstructive mechanical traffic why because it brought his university into contact with real life. How often do we hear things like, oh, those academics, a bunch of ivory tower eggheads, totally detached from real life. Not like us STEM people, us technologists. And you realize when you spend much time with them that they're often more deluded and less well-informed than the people who quite often are somewhat deluded and ill-informed in academia as well. And he goes on and he says that in this case, the expression real life seems to fall short of academic standards. The idea that motor cars are more alive than, say, centaurs or dragons is curious. That they are more real than horses is pathetically absurd. How real, how startlingly alive is a factory chimney compared with an elm tree? Poor, obsolete thing, insubstantial dream of an escapist. He's pouring his own scorn on them there. And then finally, he talks about Bletchley Station's roof, As another example, he says, I cannot convince myself that the roof is more real than the clouds. And as an artifact, I find it less inspiring than the legendary dome of heaven. The bridge to platform four is to me less interesting than Bifrost guarded by Heimdall with the glalar horn. From the wilderness of my heart, I cannot exclude the question whether railway engineers, if they'd been brought up with more fantasy, might not have done better with all their abundant means than they commonly do. fairy stories might be, I guess, better masters of art than the academic person I referred to. So three interesting examples. And then the other thing that he says about the legitimacy of escapism, he says, we don't have to worry about archaism. He says, if we leave aside a moment fantasy, I don't think that the reader or maker of fairy stories need be ashamed of the escape of archaism of preferring not dragons, but horses, castles, sailing ships, bows and arrows, not only. elves but knights and kings and priests for it is after all possible for a rational person after reflection quite unconnected with fairy story or romance to arrive at the condemnation implicit at least in the mere silence of the escapist literature of progressive things like factories or the machine guns and bombs that appear to be their most natural and inevitable dare we say inexorable product so you know archaism and not necessarily anything wrong with that right and he says that many stories out of the past have only become escapist in their appeal through certain surviving from a time when men were, as a rule, delighted with the work of their hands into our time. So, you know, that's something worth considering. He also briefly mentions science fiction, and he says something really astute, I think, about its capacity to be real escape. He tells us that science fiction is that most escapist form of all literature. But then he says this, These prophets often foretell, and many seem to yearn for, a world like one big glass-roofed railway station. But from them, it is as a rule very hard to gather what men in such a world town will do. What are they going to, to do? What will the escape be? He says they'll use their freedom in order to play with mechanical toys and the soon cloying game of moving at high speed. To judge from some of these tales, they will still be as lustful and vengeful and greedy as ever. And the ideals of these their idealists hardly reach further than the splendid notion of building more towns of the same sort on other planets. And he, he says this is an age of improved means to deteriorated and It is part of the essential malady of such days, producing the desire to escape, not indeed from life, but from our present time and self-made misery. So, this is a very interesting point. Science fiction can be escapist, but not provide real escape in the way that fantasy and fairy stories, when they're working well, do. Now, of course, that's not to say that all science fiction falls into that, but some science fiction winds up being, you could say, on the one hand, more escapist, and on the other hand, less escapist in the sense that Tolkien is saying is is a good thing for us. So, he's making a case against the critics who view escapism as a bad thing for it actually being a good and perhaps even necessary or heroic matter. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.